Please open your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. By God's grace, we'll consider verses 8 through 17 this morning in our two assemblies. Before we do so, and as you look at these verses, there is in our flesh a disappointment, a revulsion towards Scripture, because our flesh hates God and hates God's words. But God's words are the food of our souls. And God's words should be delighted in as they express the mind and heart of our great God. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Every word of God is pure. I read to you and remind you by David the psalmist, who said, and these, this is the spirit that we ought to have toward God's words in 1 Peter chapter 3, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Amen. That's the 18th verse of Psalm 119. The 97th verse, Oh, how love I thy law! Exclamation point. It is my meditation all the day. And 111, thy testimonies have I taken as an heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. 128, therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. God will put before us wondrous things, statutes, precepts from 1 Peter chapter 3. Will we behold them, love them, take them as a heritage, esteem them very highly and hate every contrary opinion, especially those that rise in our own hearts? That is the attitude we should have toward the Word of God. Now 1 Peter chapter 3, I read to you these ten verses beginning at verse 8. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and His ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, And be not afraid of their terror, 
neither be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. For it is better, if the will of God be so, that ye suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. Amen and amen. Chapter 2 and verse 11 gives us the transition from what we may call the doctrinal part of the book to the practical part of the book, what we may call the description of what God has done and has in store for us for what we should be doing for the Lord. It occurs at 2.11. I've repeated this several times. In verses 11 and 12, there is a general introduction in chapter 2 by Peter of how we ought to live in this world before the worldlings around us that we might be strangers and pilgrims here because our home is there and that they might see that difference and they might store up that difference when God visits them. They shall declare His glory because they've had a precursor to that revelation by our lives. Then, in verses 13 through 17, we had the relationship to civil government dealt with. Then in verses 18... Truly, through the end of the chapter, we had employment situations and the relationship dealt with. Then in the first seven verses of chapter 3, we had marriage dealt with from both sides. The first six verses from the side of the wife and the seventh verse from the side of the husband. We have had three relationships dealt with because that is what the Apostle Peter, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, began with as being important for our lives in this world before the rest of the world. He dealt with that third relationship from both sides, wives and husbands. Now he comes to this eighth verse, and he's going to deal with the final relationship. And so he starts off with the word, finally. Finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrarywise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. So we have a fifth matter of relationships brought up, and that is the relationship of the people of God to each other. Because it says, be ye. And he's already addressed these ye as the strangers scattered abroad throughout five provinces of the Roman Empire that are in our modern day Turkey. Finally, brethren, a church is made up of all kinds of different people. If citizens, if citizens recognize the authority of civil government and submit to it and submit to it cheerfully and submit to it thankfully and pay their taxes and give honor to whom honor is due and apply themselves well and consider government as being sent by God for the administration of civil affairs among men, nations can prosper. 
by that relationship being fulfilled properly from the subordinate side. If employees or servants or even slaves submit to their masters with all fear, not answering again, but showing all good fidelity, even if they're froward masters rather than good and gentle ones, employment situations or companies can thrive and prosper because of the subordinate role of the employees. And marriage can work as well, even if there is an unbelieving husband involved. Marriage can be good. Marriage can be pleasing to God by a wife that submits herself with all fear as described in those six verses. And a church can be a wonderful thing if the church members will realize the differences they have and embrace words of instruction like this from God. These words to us in the New Testament are weighty words to us and we should not neglect them, overlook them, be bored by them, or wish we could get to something more exciting. These are the words of God. The Lord has led us to preach expositorily through 1 Peter. Thus we come to verse 8. And we deal with 8, 9, 10, and all the way through 17. We look at these verses as being the the mind of God to us. And I want to charge you and encourage you and, and exhort you to be like David. Open mine eyes, Lord. I want to see what you have for me in 3, 8. Lord, show me what you have in 3, 9. That is the attitude that we ought to have and the appetite we ought to have for the Word of God. Lord, help us to this end. Church members, think about these churches. Think about these churches. Jews and Gentiles. Do you remember when I preached through Romans 14, I pretended that we had half the congregation on one side in the pews, Gentiles on the other side, Jews. That was a huge difference. They didn't like each other that much. They had serious cultural, religious, traditional, family differences. Church members differ greatly in age. As this church ages, no, that isn't what's happening. As the older members of this church age, and we get so many young ones, there's a great age difference. There's differences in the two sexes here. There's differences in those churches and in other churches of race, nationality, economic status, employment status. Could be a slave. Could be a slave owner. Could be a hired servant. Could be a master. Employment status, spiritual gifts, spiritual offices, as you read last evening in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, intelligence differences, educational differences, All those differences need to be blown out the door and blown out the windows when we come together as a church here and when we function as a church outside this assembly. Those differences are are tremendously large. These many different persons in those churches and in our church, far greater than Israel ever had in the Old Testament church. In the Old Testament church, they were all cousins. They all came from 12 brothers. They all grew up in the same place. They all grew up in the same way. They all grew up with the same religion, the same form of instruction, the same public teaching, the same type of occupations, 
similar occupations. Think about the unity that the church of God in the Old Testament had. And now Peter has to write a group of scattered Jewish Christians sitting out there in Turkey, 500 miles across the Mediterranean Sea, and exhort them, after you've taken care of your relationship to pagan Gentile rulers and pagan Gentile employers and maybe an unbelieving husband for a wife, finally, finally, I want to remind you of the duty you have toward each other in the house of God among the people of God. And so we have this eighth verse. Are you with me? Lord, show us what you want us to learn from 3.8. I am like you. You know, I would love to preach about Cyrus this morning. I'd love to go through the ten chapters of the 40s of Isaiah. I'd love to give you an explanation for the 22 chapters of Revelation. But what we have before us is 3.8 of 1 Peter. Let's embrace it. Let's look into it. Lord, teach us all. Teach us all, finally. For any not yet convinced that love is by far the greatest grace of the New Testament, I hope that some of you did the exercise I gave you in the preparatory email. If you look at this epistle of 1 Peter, does Peter mention brotherly love in every chapter? Do you know where they are? Let's do them quickly. 1, 22. 1 Peter 1, 22, and we'll overlook the marginal ones. Chapter 1, verse 22, Seeing ye have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart, fervently. Is that a strong endorsement right there? An exhortation to brotherly love? It is indeed. That belief of the truth should lead to unfeigned love of the brethren. And once you've reached that point, you should see that you love one another That is, every other member in the house of God with a pure heart, no false motives or guile, and to do it passionately, because it says fervently. We come to chapter 2, and in chapter 2 we have verse 17, and we have the second sentence of those four, love the brotherhood. Notice what it's cloaked around. Honor all men, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. We love the brotherhood. Chapter 3 and verse 8 and 9, where we are right now, it says, Love as brethren. It says to have compassion one of another. Chapter 4 and verse 8. And above all things, boy, Peter, you're a little redundant. Why all the repetition? And why are you saying above all things? You've already mentioned love three times in three chapters. And now in chapter 4 and verse 8, And above all things have fervent Hot, fiery, passionate charity among yourselves, for charity shall cover the multitude of sins. We will offend, we will violate, we will irritate, disappoint each other, we will sin against each other, but fervent, passionate charity overlooks it, buries it, forgets it, casts it behind its back, and goes forward. Verse 9, use hospitality one to another without grudging. Chapter 5 and verse 5. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another. And be... I don't know why I have 5-5 there at the moment. 
Clothed with humility, resisteth the proud. But we have verse 14. Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. In chapter 5 and verse 14. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. There's the kiss of charity in verse 14 after greetings being sent all the way from Babylon of modern day Iraq to these scattered Jewish Christians in modern Turkey. All five chapters make reference to this. And I have taught it before that love is the greatest grace. Love is the greatest work. Love is the greatest evidence. Love is the greatest proof of our Christianity because the Bible teaches that. The Bible is so plain about this subject. Jesus said, all men shall know that ye are my disciples by the love ye have one to another. And and on and on it goes. Circumcision availeth nothing, nor uncircumcision, but faith which worketh by love. And when we look at the eight things that make our calling and election sure, they start with faith and adding to our faith virtue and to virtue knowledge, we ascend up that scale to brotherly kindness and charity, which are the last two, seven and eight, our brotherly kindness and charity. So we have finally, and it brings us to this relationship that we have toward one another in the church of Jesus Christ. Be ye all of one mind. When we look at this, let us not take this clause out of its context and think that it means only doctrine. It is true that the church of Jesus Christ should have one mind and one judgment about Bible doctrine. We should earnestly contend for the faith, the faith, not faith, but the faith once delivered to the saints. And if any man or an angel from heaven preaches any other gospel unto you, let him be accursed. All that's true and can be multiplied by another hundred witnesses. That is not the context here. The context here is be ye all of one mind of getting rid of all relational differences. Getting rid of all differences, whether you're rich or poor, whether you're bond or free, whether you're anything else. Because of the context, this is all relational. It's been relational since verse 13 of chapter 2, and it's going to be relational for another few verses. Second of all, we have this first imperative verb, be ye all of one mind, modified by the clause that comes next, where it says, having compassion one of another. I hope you see that. There are five clauses in verse 8. Four have imperative verbs. Be ye all of one mind. Then, you got to go to the third one, love as brethren. That's imperative. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Having compassion is descriptive and helping explain, be ye of one mind. Having compassion one of another. Getting over your differences. Pitying. You know, it would be easy in a church, and they had this difficulty in New Testament churches. James chapter 2 describes it, that rich members got preferential treatment in the church. But the rich ought to have compassion on the poor and embrace them. There shouldn't be economic differences in the church of Jesus Christ. And so we have this clause, be ye all of one mind. And so this one mind is one mind in relationship, getting rid of those differences that set men apart and create cliques in every other part of society. They shouldn't in the church. And we make that judgment about the meaning of this clause because of the context around it and because of that next clause that helps explain it. There isn't in this context an exhortation to truth and gospel purity and the wholesome words of the Lord Jesus Christ and any other gospel. And if any man doesn't follow the tradition of the... That's all in other places. 
And we believe that. But here, we want to be one in this place without differences. We want to be of one mind. We want to have one goal together. We want to have one purpose in our mind. We want to have one thought for our church. And that is that we are all blood-bought, God-chosen members of a body, and we should get rid of all social, economic, intelligent, educational, traditional, religious, national, or racial differences. They don't belong in the church of God. Be ye all of one mind. Together we should embrace that. The poor should love the rich and not resent them. The rich should love the poor and not despise them. Jews and Gentiles together. All nationalities, all backgrounds. We should love one another, care for one another, and have one mind toward one another. One mind about Jesus Christ. One mind on the gospel, but primarily in this context, one mind of no distinctions or differences among us. Church members differ so greatly, but we want to ignore those differences. You know, in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 21, there's a verse that gives a lot of people trouble. Nowadays, it never did in the past. <laughs> Ephesians 5.21 says, Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Now, 5.22, wives submit yourselves. But before the apostle gets to wives in verse 22 and husbands in verse 25, and children in verse 1 of chapter 6, and fathers in verse 4 of chapter 6. Then he gets to servants, then he gets to masters. Before he gets to all these relationships, do you know what he starts out with in 521? Submit yourselves therefore one to another in the fear of the Lord. All church, we should all submit ourselves to each other. Because the whole is more important than you as an individual. We should all be of one mind. Any choices that we need to make, any time we come to worship, we should embrace what's being said through this pulpit with one mind, hearing it and loving it and taking it as our own, as individuals. And so we have this. This is what, what I taught to you from Romans chapter 12 and verse 16 when we were there with the same words in that place from Romans chapter 15 verses 5 through 7 which have the same terminology in that place as well. Much more could be said, much more has been said. I hope that by the power of the Holy Ghost for which we've prayed, these words, be ye all of one mind. Let the whole church come together. No cliques, no divisions, but unity around Christ, around the gospel, and no differences allowed because of any of those other things that make differences in the world. Having compassion one of another. This helps explain what it means to be of one mind because every church member is to show compassion toward every other church member. This is one of those one another duties in the Bible, which are common in the Bible, which means that this is God's choice to create this compound pronoun that we have come to love and embrace that teaches us combinations and permutations mathematically, but show us how the church should function by that which every joint supplies and by that which every part can contribute. It's done by showing compassion toward every other member. You. I'm speaking to you. You. Have compassion one of another. 
But it says having compassion because it's explaining the first clause of be ye all of one mind. And how do we do that? By having compassion one of another. You individually have compassion toward all others in the church, one at a, considered individually one at a time. It is a fabulous compound pronoun. It means so much. It's so full of intent. We can't escape by loving the church at large. Yes, I love the church. I love the church. Oh no. The Bible doesn't ever talk about you loving the church like that. It talks about you loving one another in the church. And that's where it gets down to all the personal differences between us. I may irritate the hound out of you at times. I'm an irritating person. But remember, before I did that to you, you irritated the hound out of me. I speak as a fool just to get your attention. We want to just forget all that and have compassion toward each other. What is compassion? The feeling or emotion when a person is moved by the suffering or distress of another and by the desire to relieve it. Okay. When I am moved by looking at someone else's situation in life and they have some troubles in their lives and they're suffering or they are distressed, I am moved by it and I want to do something to relieve it. That's compassion. And each church member is to have compassion toward each other church member. You know, if a ch- I want to tell you, brother, if a church ever did that, I'm thankful for our church. I believe the Lord is pleased with our church. But could He be pleased more? He could always be pleased more. Do we desire to please Him more? I hope you do. I sure do. But if a church ever fully practiced this, you know, there are no differences in here whatsoever. It doesn't matter about male or female in Christ, except in your relationships in, in, in marriage as a husband and a wife. And when we have our formal public assembly, the women are not to speak formally in that public assembly. But otherwise, we are all together, the body of Christ, and each one of us loves every, each of the others. That is real camaraderie, isn't it? Is that esprit de corps? Is that really taking care of a unit? the Word of God. It's 3.8. Finally! Oh, he's had all these other... Nations can work. Nations can work when a Roman Empire from that little tiny boot of Italy extends its military force from Great Britain to Afghanistan to Ethiopia to Thrace. That empire can function when there is authority and the citizens in there submit themselves to that authority. Now, they do it for different reasons. Christians do it because God said so. The others do it because Roman iron boots hurt. But it works. And a church can work. And a church can work wonderfully when it's done the Lord's way. That's what we're learning in verse 8. Finally, be all of one mind, having compassion one of another. Everything I've ever taught you about pitying... or ah, We don't want to get to that word yet, even though it is part of the definition of the word compassion... We don't want to get to that word yet. We want to remember everything that we've learned. But I can't preach the whole thing or we'd be on verse 8 for the next month. The things we've learned about loving each other. You know, you say, say, what can you give me one sentence? Yes, I can. It's 1 Corinthians 13, 4-7. Charity suffereth long and is kind. Charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, and so forth and so on. Fifteen descriptions of love. That's how we ought to treat each other. Because it says next, love as brethren. 
Love as brethren. You know, brethren, our natures are selfish. Our natures are proud. Our sinful nature. We're selfish. I'm more important. Whether you say it or verbalize it or not, you all think that. That you're more important. We're proud. Our natures resent others. Our natures despise others. We'll figure out a way to despise someone. We, 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 we look for the opportunity to despise another person. And all that is wrong. All that is sinful. We should have compassion one of another. And, and the weight of this passage, which I'm trying to lay upon you, is that Peter wrote this to the most diverse congregations you can imagine. We are not all that diverse here compared to there. And they could, if they could do it, if the Lord expected it of them, if the Apostle Peter expected it of them, then we can do it. We can do it. Can you work yourself up right now? I'm beholding wondrous things out of thy law, Lord. I've heard them before, but I want to hear them with new intensity and new meaning and new application today. I want this church to be of one mind. I want to help all of them be of one mind. I want to have compassion on every other church member. Love as brethren. We want to love as brethren. There's a family bond. God is our Father. You know, families tend to stick together. What a weak reason to stick together because you have the same DNA. You didn't even choose that family. But God chose us for the family of God. Jesus Christ is our elder brother. He's the preeminent brother. And so we love His brethren because we are brethren. We are our brother's keepers. It's clan loyalty. But it's the clan of the Lord Jesus Christ if you need to hear a Scottish word or a hillbilly word. I give it to you. You know, Paul would say in Hebrews chapter 13, let brotherly love continue. Because there's a tendency for things to interrupt it. Let brotherly love continue. Let us not let anything interrupt it. This is the Word of God to us. You know, we love to look at Psalm 119, 128, and how many times have you heard this out of my mouth? Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. We love to think of the origin of the Book of Mormon. We love to think of their holy underwear. We love to think of their underground baptistries where they're baptized for the dead. We love to think of Joseph Smith perjuring himself and being caught for being a peeper before he peeped his way into the head of the Mormon church. Uh-uh. Let's let 3.8 be the fulfillment of 119.128. I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. And I hate every false way. Lord, what you're telling me here in verse 8, I do not do all the time. Forgive me, because I intend to do exactly what you have here. You tell us to be all of one mind. I will do my best to help this church be all of one mind. I will have compassion on every other single church member. I will love as a brother, and I will be pitiful. That means I will show pity. Compassionate, merciful, tender, Consideration of other people. Pity. When Pharaoh's daughter looked down there in that river and among those bulrushes was a little baby crying, she had compassion and pity upon it. I'm thankful that God says in Psalm 103, which I love to use and I share with you in prayer, like as a father 
pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. That gives us a definition for pity. A father recognizing the weaker abilities of children, depending on their age and depending on the gifts that God did or did not give to them. A father, therefore, shows pity toward them. And we should show pity for the same sort of reasons toward one another. Pity includes comforting the feeble-minded, supporting the weak, being patient toward all men, as 1 Thessalonians 5.14 describes. Be pitiful. Now, that, you know, be pitiful. That doesn't mean come in here, crawl, come crawling in here, feeling sorry for yourself, having your own pity party so that we pity you. When it says be pitiful, it means show pity toward others. Okay, that's what it's teaching us. Be courteous. Courteous is having such manners as befit the court of a prince. That's where the word... What do you think the first five letters are? C-O-U-R-T. Courteous. It's conduct befitting the court of a prince. We're all princes here, yay. The Bible says something better than that. The Bible says we're all kings and priests here. Now, if Arana, a Jebusite, could conduct himself like a king when he gave Mount Moriah to David for the building of an altar where Solomon eventually built the the temple of God, we can conduct ourselves as kings by being graciously kind and sensitive and polite and respectful to the positions and feelings of other people. Courteous. A wonderful word. Lord, help us to put it into practice. A form of this word is only used twice elsewhere in the Bible. It's in Acts chapter 27 and Acts chapter 28 in both places. It's a person in authority showing kindness to the Apostle Paul. And that's why it's called courtesy, because it was someone in authority conducting himself like a prince toward Paul. Can we conduct ourselves like princes toward one another? The five things that we've just covered in verse 8 start in the heart. Is your heart committed to these things? Be ye all of one mind. Having compassion one of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. Five positive things that the Lord teaches us. You know, we have spent time learning about civil authority. We have spent time learning about a work ethic and employment authority. We have spent time learning about the marriage relationship. This is the church relationship. We should not make the civil more important or the employment more important, or marriage more important. This is the church of God. And Peter would preface it with that one word, finally, let me deal with the last relational duty that you have before we move on to other subjects. And so we have the eighth verse. Then verse 9, not rendering evil for evil, or railing for railing. Now because we are all sinful, flesh-laden, Children waiting for our adoption. Our bodies have not yet been redeemed. We still have a sin nature in us. And because of that, we will offend each other. We will treat each other evilly at times. We will rail on each other at times. To rail means to utter abusive language, to call names, to be unduly critical, to ridicule. It's what they did to the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. It's what Jesus condemned as calling someone a fool without a righteous and holy cause. Taught in Matthew chapter 5. You know, we look at this and we say, come on, should Christians... Why would Peter even talk about Christians doing evil to each other? Have you read the New Testament? I'm not even going to go to the Old Testament. 
You know, you can hardly cover a chapter of the Old Testament before you find somebody doing something to someone else and they're all in the church. See, King Saul and David were both in the church of God of the Old Testament. But look at how Saul treated David. Look at how David's sons treated each other. We don't need to go to the Old Testament. All we have to do is go to the New Testament. I go to Acts chapter 6, and there's a grievous complaining between the widows that the widows of the Hebrews were getting preferential treatment over the widows of the Grecians. And so there was whining and complaining going on in the church. I go a little bit further and I find Paul and Barnabas having such a sharp contention between the two of them that they couldn't even go out on their next evangelistic trip together. I come over to Philippians chapter 1 and I have the Apostle Paul wanting to correct... Well, that's not. I'm not going to use that one. I want to use Philippians chapter 4 and verse 2. I beseech you, Odious, and beseech Syntyche, that they be of the same mind in the Lord. Oh, how would you like to have that epistle read in your church and know that it's being circulated through the entire Roman Empire and it's got you named as not getting along with another church member? You know, you read through the New Testament, this is what you find. I've already mentioned in James chapter 2 that that the church... And then listen, he was talking to many churches why they were honoring the rich over the poor. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul said, How can I teach you because you're yet carnal? Is there not striving and fighting among you, Corinthians? Chapter 1, chapter 3, he says it. They had their little preacher factions. Isn't that such a noble calling? In a church, I'm of Paul. Paul's my man. Paul's the best preacher God ever ordained. Well, I'm of Cephas. Peter's my man. He's the best. He did it on the day of Pentecost, and he's the one that converted the household of Cornelius. Well, I'm of Apollos. That dude is eloquent. He's better than both Peter and Paul. Well, you foolish man-following, man-made, carnal Christians, I'm a follower of Christ. Oh, come on. The church at Corinth was doing that. We don't do any of that. We despise that kind of stuff. Just like Paul did. Not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing. Things will come up. They, I absolutely promise you that things are going to come up. Things have come up in the past. Things are going to come up in the future. Someone's going to do something to irritate you, offend you, hurt you. Yes, your little feelings are going to get hurt. Your little mind is going to get perplexed. Your little heart's going to get wounded. My little heart's going to get wounded. And what we need to do is to blow that out. And when someone renders evil to us, and when someone rails on us, we, contrary-wise, you know there's a whole class of invest of uh, traders and investors that are contrarian. Traders and investors, that means they always go contrary to what everyone else is doing because if everyone else is doing it, it has just about reached the end of its success and profitability. And so they're contrarian. And while everyone else is going long and driving a market higher and higher, they short it because they're contrarian. Well, the Lord wants you to be a contrarian Christian. And when someone's treating you evilly or when someone is railing against you, give them a blessing. And I'll tell you, you do it first in private. Then you do it to them. Say something good to them. Do something nice for them. This is the word of the Lord to us in chapter 3 and verse 9. Look at what it says. Not rendering evil for evil. We do not want to return what someone does to us. That's what the devil does. 
That's what the world does. That's what the wicked do. Come on. When someone hurts you or someone offends you or someone does evil to you or someone rails against you, give them a blessing. Tell them you love them. Tell them you're praying for them. Telling you, tell them you hope that something works out well in their life. Oh, if a church ever did that, what a church it could be. This is the word of the Lord to us. We want to esteem these precepts concerning this matter of a church relationship above very highly and above all things. And we want to put it into practice and hate every contrary way that rises in our hearts. But contrary wise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called, that ye should inherit a blessing. Our religion is one of blessing. Our religion is one of God having chosen us, sinful, irritating, offending, rebel sinners, and making us His children, and giving us a blessing in this world, and promising us a blessing in the world to come. If our whole religion is one of blessing enemies, surely we can stir up a little bit of that to show that we belong in that religion. That's what the second half of this verse is teaching when it says, but contrary wise blessing. There's another but, another inspired disjunctive. We don't want to be like the first half of nine. We want to be like the second half, giving a blessing where someone else has cursed us. And the Bible teaches that that's how we love our enemies. In Matthew chapter 5, knowing that ye are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. We should know something. Our religion is based on God-blessing enemies. If our religion is based on God-blessing enemies, and do we, do, have you offended God this past week? Had anybody here offended God this past week? Did He forgive you? Does He still bless you? Oh, that's our religion. Let's show it to one another. Peter teaches us. So many more things could be said. But I want to go to the 10th verse because I need to. Oh, the 10th verse, brethren. Oh, look what it says. For he that will love life. I love loving life. There's only one way to live. And I am not borrowing it in the sense of Schlitz, malt liquor. To live it with all the gusto you can. Life is too short not to love it and to live it and to enjoy good days. Look at what it says. Verse 10, For he that will love life and see good days. Oh yes, Peter. Are you kidding me? Are you telling me how I can love life and I can see good days that the Lord is going to bless me? That I can go through life passionately and excited? Yes, Jonathan. I am writing that to you by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit told me to take Psalm 34 verses 12 through 16 and copy them in 1 Peter chapter 3. For those of you that want to turn, I'm going to quickly read it to you. That way I can get some repetition in without it looking like repetition. Psalm 34 and verse 12. This is good stuff. Listen, I just want to be happy. Do you want to be happy? Amen. There's a way to be happy. And it's taught in the pages of the Bible right here. Right. Oh Lord, open thou mine eyes that I might behold wondrous things out of thy law. Listen guys, there's only one way to live where your feet barely touch the mountaintops. Pastor, do you always live that way? No! Why don't I? 
Because I don't always keep what is described following the first half of verse 10. But oh Lord, I want to keep it and I want to share it with you and I want all of us to stir each other up to keep it. I read to you from Psalm 34. I love it when Peter tells me that what David wrote in Psalm 34 applies to me in the New Testament. I love that. You know, somebody could say to me, well, that's the Old Testament. God doesn't care about your happiness in the New Testament. Oh, Peter brought it forward into 1 Peter chapter 3. Psalm 34 verse 12. What man is he that desireth life and loveth many days that he may see good? What kind of a man is that? That's every normal thinking proper man. Here's how you do it. Verse 13. Keep thy tongue from evil and thy lips from speaking guile. That's your mouth. Sins of the mouth in verse 13. Verse 14. Depart from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. That's your actions in verse 14. Verse 15, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous and his ears are open unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. And so we have five verses shrunk down to three verses when we come to 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 10, let me read this sentence to you. 10 through 12, for he that will love life and see good days let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it and ensue it. Excuse me. I was still thinking David in Psalm 34. And ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are upon over the righteous and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Thank you, Lord, for such a wonderful text. Most men are miserable in comparison, as it indicated by their addictions and their dysfunctions and their unhappiness. You know, the Lord's given us life now, and Jesus called it the abundant life, and He's giving us eternal life in the world to come. He that will love life and see good days. I love it when the Lord makes promises like this, and the Lord knows it when He does it, and the Lord knows it's a good thing. In Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, the two places in the Bible where the Ten Commandments are given, God said, Honor thy father and thy mother that it may go well with thee, and thou mayest live long upon the earth which the Lord thy God giveth thee. That is so simple. What do you want to do this afternoon, Father? Every one of you should be thinking, Do I have a father? Do I have a mother that I can honor? I'm very serious. I'm not jesting one whit. I wish he'd ask for more so I could do more because the Bible says it. And when we come to Ephesians chapter 6, honor thy father and thy mother that it may be well with thee and thou mayest live long on the earth for this is the first commandment with promise. The Lord knows when he makes a promise. The Lord knows when he makes a promise and right here is a promise. He that will love life and see good days. do Do you want to dive into this? Just look at it. It's very simple. Stop sinning with your mouth. Stop sinning with your mouth. Because that's what's in verse 10. Let him refrain his tongue from evil. Hold back that tongue from saying unkind, foolish, sinful, pompous, proud, boasting, cutting, sarcastic, tail-bearing, slandering things. Stop all use of your tongue to hurt other people. Stop it. Refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. No deception, no exaggeration, no hidden agenda, no treachery, no guile. We've already been over that word in chapter 2. Peter's repeating himself a lot. Uh, Why? 
Is it because we sin with our mouths often? Yes. Because we sin with our mouths often. What would you pay for a counselor to make you happy? What do people pay for counselors to make them happy? What's the retainer? What's the hourly? A hundred? A hundred an hour? This is God inspiring David. Oh, we want to be like David. And Peter, we should want to be like Peter. These two men put their pens to these words. He that will love life and see good days. This is how you get it. Stop sinning with this thing. There's two benefits from stopping sinning with this thing. Other people like you. Two, God loves you. And God is open to hear your prayers. And He's open with His eyes to watch you in your life. And when you need His help, did you pray that this morning, brother? How did you know I wanted Second Chronicles 16 and verse 9? Second Chronicles 16 verse 9 says that the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the earth right. looking to show Himself strong. Listen to, listen to these words. Let me, let me rub my goosebumps down. Listen to these words. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro in the earth to show Himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are perfect before Him. So all these verses tie together here, 10 through 12. If you stop sinning with your mouth, you immediately rise in the estimation and esteem of others. He that loveth pureness of heart for the grace of his lips, the king shall be his friend. So there's a natural consequence of stopping sinning with your mouth, but then there's this powerful spiritual consequence of God loving the fact that you're ruling You are ruling and training. You've got the bullwhip out and you are saying, kneel on that stool there, elephant, and beg for the apple. I'm I'm pretending that I'm a trainer in a circus if you didn't know where I was going. Because the Bible says in James chapter 3, every animal, every sort of animal has been trained by men, but no man can tame the tongue. Oh, if you can get a hold of that tongue, you say, I'm just going to stop talking. <laughs> then the fire burns inside, and the Lord sees that problem too. Because David tried that one time, but I just won't say anything. That doesn't work, but it does help to cut your words in half if you're someone that talks a lot. Because in the multitude of words there wanteth not sin. But let him refrain his tongue from evil, and his lips that they speak no guile. Let's stop sinning with our mouths. Everything you say about another person should be positive, uplifting, encouraging, good, building up their reputation. There shouldn't be anything else. If you can't say something nice, it used to be said in schoolrooms, then don't say anything at all. Verse 11, let him eschew evil. Who who eschewed evil in the Bible? Job was a perfect man, an upright man, and feared God and eschewed evil. What does it mean to eschew evil? It means to refrain from evil. It means to avoid it and to shun it, to abstain from evil and to do it carefully. Not to allow any indulgence or conduct that is evil. Job hated evil. Job hated sin. He was a perfect man. And God saw him as such. And so it says in verse 12, verse 11 I mean, eschew evil and do good. 
So you put off evil, you won't do it, you avoid it, you abstain from evil. I don't want to do what's wrong. I'm only going to do what's right. So it says, do good. Get rid of everything bad in your life. Get rid of bad thoughts. Get rid of bad places. Get rid of bad friends. Get rid of, get rid of bad actions. And put take on new ones to replace them that are good. Eschew evil and do good. This is simple. I don't need eight sermons to tell you what it means to do good. There's all kinds of good in your life. There's good with your money. There's good with your time. There's good with your friends. There's good with your work ethic at work. There's good in your relationships here. And primarily, we're dealing still relationally. Do good. You know, there's a young brother in this church that likes this verse. When I first opened up that I was going to preach on 1 Peter, he read the epistle and he said, 311 is my favorite verse because it's got two E words in it. Eschew and ensue. And if you eschew and ensue, God's going to bless you and you can love life. To eschew evil is to get evil out of your life and do good. And then it says, seek peace and ensue it. And did we, did our Bible define the word ensue for us if we compare David to Peter? Did it, what does ensue mean? Pursue. So not only are you seeking it, but you are chasing it down to catch it. You are going to get it. You are going to make sure that peace happens. That man will be blessed. That man will love life. God loves peacemakers. God cannot stand those that hold grudges. God can't stand those that hold bitterness, resentment. God loves peacemakers, those that forgive and forget, those that forbear and go forward, those that love, overlooking, passing over transgressions. That's a glorious man. And the Bible says that. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. You look like a child of God when you make peace. You can make peace in your marriage. You can make peace in your family. You can make peace in this church. You can help others in this church make peace. And so it says, eschew evil. Stop sinning. Do good. Seek peace. And ensue it. Eschew and ensue. And if that helps you remember 311, then terrific. For the eyes of the Lord. God's eyes to show Himself strong to see your needs, and to come to your rescue. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous. Who are the righteous? They are the ones that don't sin with their mouth in verse 10, and they are the ones that don't sin in their lives in verse 11. The eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and His ears are open unto their prayers. I'll tell you when David prayed. David prayed, it says, in Psalm chapter 18, and you've heard this one before, Then the earth shook. The earth shook. And he came riding upon the clouds of heaven, hailstones and fire. It was the Lord. The, the, the word pictures are just dramatic. And the word pictures are not, should not be wasted on us. That when we need help, the Lord will come riding to our rescue. Why will he come riding to our rescue? Because we're living righteously. How are we living righteously? We are guarding our tongues and holding back our speech that we do not sin in word. And then we are eschewing evil, doing good, seeking peace, and ensuing it. That's the description of the righteous. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. Oh, brethren, if you break these rules here in verse 10 about your mouth, in verse 11 about your life, then you are not righteous, you are the wicked, and God sets His face against you. And when God sets His face against you, you are in serious trouble. There are now two problems in your life instead of two good things. The two good things were other men like you because you do things that are likable. Kings love men that have gracious speech. Psalm Proverbs 22.11 And God is on your side. But when you sin, God is against you and other men are against you. 
Lot's life was torn to shreds. God tore Lot's family to shreds because he compromised with the world. He pitched his tent towards Sodom and then went past that. Do you compromise with family? Eli's life and his family tree were annihilated by God. I've preached that to the men before. I've preached it to the church before. All the priests that descended out of that old man were cut off by Doeg the Edomite in the city of Nob. And the last one that was left was left for a purpose because he had Ahimelech, he had to go to Zadok, the new priest, and beg for a piece of bread to survive. Oh, when it says in verse 12, but the face of the Lord is against them that do evil, he is not smiling on such men. He is pounding them. Do you compromise with women? Samson ended life as a blind grinder with nothing. He didn't even have Delilah, did he? He thought he was going to have Delilah. He was a blind grinder because he compromised. Be sure your sin will find you out, my dear brethren. Do you compromise relational fairness? Are you unfair in relationships? Are you unmerciful? Are you a tyrant? Are you cruel? Nabal tried it one time. God gave Nabal ten days to think about dying and thinking about losing his wife to David before God killed him. His heart was as a stone for ten days. And God gave Abigail, his beautiful wife with a good understanding heart, to David. Do you compromise most anything? King Saul ended up nailed to a wall with his foe ruling. The one he was so jealous of, David on his throne. His family tree cut off for ruling in Israel, and he was nailed to a wall in Philistia. Do you compromise with women? Solomon ended up under God's judgment and lost ten tribes of Israel in his son Rehoboam. Do you compromise with priorities? The regathered Jews did not get ahead because they didn't put the house of God first in their lives, and they earned wages to put it into a bag with holes in it. They could not get ahead no matter how hard they worked, no matter what Christian ethic they had and the rules of Bible economics they followed. They could not get ahead because God's face was against them. And he said, consider your ways. Mark your calendar. If you'll do it my way, you can mark your calendar. You can look back that you didn't get anything. You can look forward. You know that all the seeds in the barn, there's no idea whether you're going to have a prosperous harvest or not. I will bless you. Do you compromise with passion? So what do you mean about that? Did you come to church today wanting to give God your very best with your heart and your mind fervent toward Him? Israel lost their passion. The church at Ephesus lost their passion. The church at Laodicea lost their passion. When Jesus Christ sets His face against men, He would spew out the church of Laodicea. He would take the candlestick from the church at Ephesus, and in Isaiah 59, he said, Isaiah 29, excuse me, Isaiah 29, I will proceed to do a marvelous work and a wonder. I will take away all your understanding because your fear is taught by the precept of men and it's in lip only, not in heart. God wants your hearts. And who is he that will harm you if you be followers of that which is good? This is an interesting statement. This is a general rule. This is a general rule, carefully defining several other things and not letting them encroach because the next verse talks about men doing you harm. This is a general rule that if you live righteously, like what has just been described, you will grow in favor with God 
and then. You say, but what about the Lord Jesus Christ? What about the Lord Jesus Christ? What do you want to lay on me? That uh, verse 13 didn't apply to him? The common people loved hearing the Lord Jesus Christ. He grew in favor with God and men. There were a few religious tyrants that crucified him. It's a general rule. And who is he that will harm you if ye be followers of that which is good? If you do what is good and right in general, even among worldlings, you will be esteemed because you will, have, you will conduct yourself by a code of conduct that is better than theirs. They will know how exceedingly fair you are, unfair to yourself at times. They will know that you're willing to defraud yourself in order to be honest before all men. They will see you loving your neighbor. They will see you never retaliating like everyone else does in the office. They will never hear you criticizing authority in the workplace or anywhere else in the office. And you can grow in favor with God and man. It didn't. King Hiram loved David. He was ever a lover of David. How could 600 Gittites swear their lives in this world to David? Because they'd never met anyone like him. And so this is a general rule. Now Peter's going to contradict this general rule in the very next verse. If it be, if it be God's will... Right. to bring some suffering into a person's life, then there is a certain way to deal with it. But overall, in general, this is the way to live. Do you want to love life and see good days? Do you want to avoid harm from other people? Then do what's been described here. In verse 10, control your speech. Verse 11, your life. Be a peacemaker because God will bless you. He will see your needs. He will hear your prayers. He will come to your rescue. If you don't do these things, the face of the Lord will be against you and you will never survive. He will grind you to powder. And then the question, who is he that will harm you? If he be followers of that which is good, no one's going to harm you. If you're a follower of that which is good, because of verse 12, God is on your side. Who's going to harm you when God's on your side? Verse 12 is about God being on your side. So the question is asked, as a general rule, who can hurt you when God's on your side? No one can hurt you. You say, well, then why do bad things happen to Christians sometimes, like the martyrs? Because God made a choice. Because God made a choice to sustain you with His grace to be able to give your life, which is the ultimate sacrifice and act of love, toward God, and then take you into heaven. It's not all that bad. It's a good thing. It's an exception. Not all Christians die as martyrs. Only a very small percentage of them do. But them doing that doesn't nullify this general rule. The general rule still holds that if you live righteously as described here, who's going to do you any harm? Everyone's going to love you. Oh, there's going to be religious tyrants that come along and try to get rid of you like they did the Lord Jesus Christ, the Apostle Paul, Peter, and others, and including these poor saints here, but then it's going to be the will of God that makes that choice. And that will is described down in verse 17 where it says, it is better if the will of God be so that you suffer for well-doing than for evil-doing. It's the will of God that makes that choice. The general rule still holds. He that will love life and see good days. What a church we can have and what a life you can have. And if we were all to do these things, what a church we would have and what lives all the individual members of this church would have. May the Lord bless.
the preaching of his word. May we esteem his precepts concerning all things to be right and hate every false way. Amen. Amen.